The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plane Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at planecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi Warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host Dave Homewood. Um, today I'm talking with Paul Brennan, who's uh, running the Bring Our Birds Home campaign. Hi, Paul. G'day, Dave. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Oh, no problem. No problem. It's uh, a really exciting and interesting uh, project that you've taken on here. And I know there's a lot of people who are um, you know, quite interested to know more about it. And uh, they've been following your videos and your, and your updates and that. But the, it's, it's good to get you on the show and just have a bit of a chat about it. Um, but before we get into that, I just wonder, can you take me back to where you first got into aviation, uh, your interest and your passion for aviation and airliners? Tell, tell me how that all came about. Well, when I was a, uh, a kid, I was into anything to do with transport. I can tell you, trucks, ships, planes, and uh, used to go and spend quite a bit of time uh, watching the planes as you did when you're a kid and you're a working class family and it was great entertainment in the weekend. Yep. And uh, and back in those days, they made it easy for people to observe the planes. You could go on the observation deck, which was right above where the action was, and watch it really close up without any, you know, the aid of any binoculars or anything like that coming and going. It was a sort of a different era in that respect. But uh, being up and close to it, and, and I think there's always... For everyone, there's something about flying machines. Some take it more seriously than others, but everyone's fascinated with them. So it sort of grew into an interest and and then into um, a bit of a passion. Did some early flying back when, as I say, when I had some income and (laughs) didn't have other commitments. Right. Tend to get back to that sometime. Uh, And also mixed with the media interest that I've um, had all along, and I've been in a media career pretty well all my life. Uh, I decided to merge the two in the early 2000s through that decade and um, became an uh, aviation camera person and um, got into some early webcasting of some of the big air shows up in the US, went to six Oshkoshes and all sorts of other uh, events and ended up making a TV show up there with, with the company uh, in 06, 07. So really got into it that way. And um, have sort of amassed this film library that sits on the wall and always reminds me how much it costs to film all that sort of stuff. So, um, uh, you know, always looking at it. And sort of one day, just looking around and talking to a few people, the question was asked, I wonder how many of those old originals from Teal, NAC, Air New Zealand are still around, which is, you know, an interesting question. Right. And there's the uh, the databases are out there to sort of start, but um, as it turn, as it turns out, it's not so easy to find really accurate information. You've really got to drill down. But it seemed when we sort of had a look a year or so ago that there were one of each still left, still on the planet. 
which is remarkable. Anyone who knows anything about that business um, knows that uh, aircraft, on the whole, don't last long intact once they've been pulled out of service. They're quite often pulled to pieces. Everyone's heard about the, the desert graveyards. Some fear better in those graveyards than others. Uh, so it was quite remarkable that we'd sort of discovered those five. So I guess what I'm saying is there's a, a d direct line extension from uh, having an interest in, in it as a kid to then getting to this stage when you're really wanting to save those, um, well, our artifacts now that you remember from those days, you know, it's sort of like coming full circle. And, you know, if there weren't any left, there wouldn't be any hope, but it turned out that there were some left and uh, it became clear because a few people have talked about this in the past. I've had an experience Oh, back in the late 90s uh, with trying to get back the first 737 NAC that was delivered in 68. And that was available for a very low price in the uh, in a graveyard at McCarran Field as it was, or airport in Las Vegas as it was at the time in the late 90s. Even spoke to the guy who owned the airframe, got him down to a price range. Briley's owned Air New Zealand, and unfortunately they just weren't interested in and even thinking about it. So that's always sort of rattled around in my head since then. I'm very disappointed at the time, but hey, it was what it was at the time. And there was really no other way of, of trying to come back and save that. And of course, uh, back in those days, communication was a lot more, yeah, I guess difficult, not so easy. So um, now we, we can contact people and, and keep in touch, in touch with people very easily. So remembering that, coming back to this um, um, over the last year or so, um, you know, me and a few others decided if someone doesn't make a move soon, these will be lost. And that would be really sad because they are available. And it's, you know, it's not a, a huge job tracking them down and securing them, really, um, as the first part of the uh, exercise. So let's give it a go. And it turned out that I was in the best position because I've got a bit of a profile and I've got resources, film library and uh, content to support a campaign. Social media now um, is a great communication device, as everyone knows. Crowd, yep. Crowdfunding has come into place. Um, that's an interesting ride at the moment. So put all those ingredients together. It's as good a time as any to give um, a campaign like this a go. And let's face it, you know, one, two, three years from now, um, you, you could be looking at a situation where half of these aircraft, or, or maybe more than half, are gone. So the time window is pretty narrow. So, um, yeah, that's really the long and short of it, the uh, arc of, you know, getting interested and now uh, all these years later trying to, to save the last of them. Right. And, of course, even if you only, in the end, just save one of them, that's still uh, a massive achievement. But you've got, you've got five aircraft that you're looking at. Can you tell us about those five aircraft and also what their current situation is and, and their condition? Okay. So we started off looking for specifically the uh, Electra that used to be uh, ZKTB, the only one yep. left, second one delivered, uh, I think in 59. Then, um, and let's go uh, in chronological order here, then the DC-8, ZKNZC, the uh, third delivered in 65, September 65. I think NZA was delivered in June of that year, and uh, ZB came soon after, but that crashed, if people remember um, not too long after it uh, entered service with the airline, I think there was a training accident in Mungary and some um, design fault in the cockpit led to one of the engines being put into reverse during a touch and go. I believe that was the circumstance and the thing right. cartwheeled and crashed. So that was that, that's why you never hear of that one. You won't see, I don't think, that um, registration displayed anywhere, but maybe because of that. So NZC was the next one. That is the only one left. Through a very uh, strange uh, quirk of uh, legal dispute that's lasted so much longer than it probably ever should have, uh, it now uh, sits as the only one of those DC-8s left, which is just, when you think about it, that's incredible. It really is amazing that there's one left, yeah. and it's intact. Yeah. And just on that basis, every effort should be made to secure it. I can tell you we're trying everything because – um, that is so. Um, that, that is so unbelievable. Then we were looking at uh, 737, which was in North Carolina at an airfield there, and it had been sitting there since the 90s, since it finished up service with Olympic Airlines or Airways of Greece, was where it ended up. Uh, NAD was the registration second 73 delivered, very historic because it flew the first commercial jet service, scheduled jet service 
a domestic one in uh, our country's history. So it's a significant aircraft. Uh, but uh, we found out only a few weeks ago that that had been destroyed back in November. So we we, we sort of missed that one. And that, that was hard to take. I can tell you that. That was hard to take. But I'll come back and I'll, I've got more on that story. Um, then we realized that there was a DC-10 left. The second to last one, I think, that we got in 1976, uh, NZS. Uh, I could be, I might have missed one, but I'm pretty sure about that. Uh, and and who would have thought it would have ended up in Havana, Cuba, sitting there derelict? I think the local airport authorities use it um, for training, um, maybe uh, security training, etc. It looks, and we just put up a photo today on the um, Facebook page. It looks, uh, you know, in tatty condition, but um, you know, with a scrub down and a bit of uh, TLC, it can be brought back to to looking like something. But the fact that one of those is left is remarkable right. as well. And um, I'm now talking with the ambassador uh, um, to New Zealand from Cuba about what we can do to to try and get hold of that. Uh, either once they're finished with it, or you know, it's if they can have another airframe to replace that one there, if they're using it for a particular purpose, then we can try and arrange that and try and get to that one too. That would be a fantastic get. I think uh, the DC-10, even though it wasn't a huge um, uh, stayer in in service in NZ, only what just under ten years compared to the others. That's that's about a third of the time. Um, it's still obviously so part of our history for obvious reasons. And also the fact that it, um, you know, it took all, the Coro all the way through to London with the deal with British Airways that flew it out of uh, LA, I think, via Miami to Heathrow. So, you know, we, we really extended the Coro right out to the other side of the world with the DC-10. Talk to any engineer, any pilot, they'll tell you it's a fantastic aircraft. And, I've heard that. Yeah, I've heard that. And they want, they, so many people want air, that aircraft back. So we're going to work real hard for that. So that's there. We know that's there. We know it hasn't been crushed. We've got uh, very up-to-date evidence, and we're now talking with the f the first point of entry that you try and deal with the government, and that is uh, the through the embassy here, back here in Wellington. And I was uh, interested to find out there was, in fact, a Cuban embassy here. I didn't realize, but uh, oh, okay. there you go. They're, um, they're in Karori, and there they are. So let's see how that one goes. Right. Then we were uh, looking at um, uh, the, obviously, 747, um, very big aircraft um, and uh, has all sorts of issues regarding getting hold of one and getting it broken down, dismantled and transporting. We thought we had the first 747-200 NZV as it was when it was delivered in 81, June 81. And um, that was used up until 2011 by Transero Airlines of Russia, which is quite a big operation before it went belly up, I think, last year. And... Um, uh, but we had uh, some evidence, photographic evidence, only a year old, plus a Google Earth picture from 2017 to suggest it was still there. Well, um, I went and saw the uh, Russian embassy in Wellington, and they were able to connect me with the company that's dealing with the affairs of Transero as they wind them down, I guess the equivalent of the receivers in this country. And they were able to tell me uh, in a very short, sharp email, which came through only about an hour after I sent off the question, that uh, that aircraft had been scrapped back in, um, uh, I think it was early 2016. So we missed that one. And the Google Earth picture turned out to be another Transero 747 that had been towed into that exact same parking spot right. as it was there before. So you can see uh, how it's, it can be quite confusing. Uh, but uh, in the end, we found out that it wasn't there. There was nothing we could have done because we didn't start this until well after that, that both those aircraft were, were scrapped. So that was a real uh, disappointment. But then, you know, uh, it's interesting. Um, we look around some more and we see that there's one Air New Zealand 737-200 still around. And that's the QC one that was here between 82 and I think um, uh, oh, 2010 maybe. Uh, it wasn't too long ago that it left. It was over 30 years service. Turns out it's the hardest working aircraft in New Zealand service, basically, uh, because it's a quick change freighter. Uh, passenger jet, they'd fly it freight at night, passenger during the day. I worked out that it carried over 2.2 million passengers and about 180,000 tons of freight in its service in New Zealand, which is pretty good for wow. just a little little 737. So that basically is sitting on the uh, at an airfield at a place called Trois-Rivieres in Quebec, Canada, and yep. it's still airworthy, we're told. I spoke to not the owner, but the company that 
uh, has the lease on the aircraft for a few more months. It uh, has about 2,300 flying hours left on it before either they have to spend a huge amount of money on it, which is just not practical, or you know it ends its life, right. which is quite good because um, uh, chances are they might use it for one more season because they fly it up into the Arctic area of Canada. It's had the gravel kit um, uh, put on it, which is a Boeing fitting for that particular model, which deflects uh, gravel away from the underbelly of the fuselage and has the blowers on the engines to stop FOD being ingested. It's got that package on it. So they might wait another season, but if not, it's pretty well done. So what we're hoping now is that we can get an arrangement where in its last hours, we can sort of get it back to New Zealand. It's a, right. of the size that you can store it locally. It's not a huge aircraft. Right. It can it can st stay at a provincial airport if it has to, and it can stay basically airworthy until it needs to fly to its final point where it's either dismantled and transported somewhere or it's displayed who, who know where, who knows where it'll be displayed that's that's what i keep saying is someone else's problem for the future so that's yeah. good uh so um let me just flick back the electra is still airworthy for those who've been following they'll know that uh, that has been uh, operated by buffalo airways uh, in alberta canada and it's been changed to a water bomber it's hardly ever flown obviously you they need the forest fire and and a little bit of training they do they'll fly but spends most of the time on the ground. It's remarkable that it's still airworthy. We're in communication with the manager of that uh, airline now. He knows everything that we're trying to do. And again, we're hoping that its final flight will be back to NZ. And that would be amazing because, yeah, it would. I mean, you know, talking 60 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's incredible. Uh, between it first arriving and then it arriving back. So that's pretty cool. Now, just flicking uh, uh, to the last 747, it was disappointing that, uh, NZV had been scrapped. All of them have been scrapped, by the way. The five, all of them are gone. In fact, I had a funny uh, moment. It was sort of funny on one hand, but a bit sad on the other, uh, where I uh, was told by the Transero person who got back to me from Moscow that he uh, thought that there were a few others being uh, scrapped at an airport called Rome Griffiths, which is north of New York City, upper, upstate New York, they call it. And uh, the company that used to own those planes had a maintenance base up there, and the four of the five had ended up uh, at this maintenance base. And I'd found a Google Earth shot of them sitting in various, you know, states of of disrepair and dismantling. And it looked like there might have been one of those five still in some sort of condition. The tail was off it, but you can get another tail. Substantially, uh, it was intact. And I, I, I finally got through, and, and I tell you, it's a goose chase trying to get through to some of these people. Believe me, it's, yep, it's not easy. Yep, a lot of the websites are only let you have form emails. So you've got to really drill on down and do, um, you know, phone uh, number hunting on other people's white pages. And it, you sort of your normal detective work sort of stuff. Anyway, I had this guy, he drove out to the spot, the airport manager, and he, he, he was talking to me as he was driving out to this place at the airport. And then he got there and he said, no, the... They've all gone. So that was a bit of a disappointment. But anyway, what we found out was there's actually only one passenger Air New Zealand 747 left flying in the world. There are two, but only one's a passenger aircraft. The other one's converted to a freighter, uh, flies for Asiani Airlines Korea. So not not such a good configuration, but you'd take it if it was the last one. You can pull the plugs out of the windows again and, and make it look like something. But the, the last one, NBV, to be delivered to Air New Zealand, GE-powered one, but 419. So it's a 1-9, made to Air New Zealand spec, ordered by them, paid for by them originally. Did, what, 16 years, 15 or 16 years with the airline, and then has gone on to be owned by a company in Florida who is dry leasing it to a charter airline in Spain called Vamos Air. And it's probably between we're, we're trying to find out where it's at and its maintenance uh uh, program if it's had its major check done recently it's probably got about another seven years in service but uh if if they're two three years away from this major check it's either the c or d i can't remember but it's an every eight year check those checks run into millions of dollars for the airframe and for the engines as well very expensive so you could be looking at um, close to 20 million us dollars to keep the thing um uh flyable for another eight years and it's sort of hard to see that a 747 of that age, considering younger ones are going to the desert every day and never being used again, uh, can survive that. So um, it's good to know that the last one available is still out there. It's still flying. 
And we've yeah. got time now because we know who owns it now and we're talking with them to, again, put our hand up and say, when it becomes available, when you're done with it, when it's only, you know, going to the junkyard, we want to be able to, like, insert ourselves in at this point. We know how much Air New Zealand sold the airframe to this company for, and it's not that mind-boggling, and that's for an operational airframe without engines. But for a good working airframe, well-maintained. So, you know, um, probably you're looking at a price in the hundreds, the mid-hundreds of thousands of dollars, probably, to get the thing in the end, or maybe even below. So that's not such a stretch if you're looking to obtain an artifact that might give two, 100, 200, 300 years service in a museum setting, if you know what I mean. So, yeah, exactly. So, so I guess what I'm, I'm, I'm probably uh, rabbiting on a bit, but I guess what I'm saying is, as we've gone through the process, it started out quite hard. Um, yep. Getting the information was difficult, um, uh, and then you have to start a campaign and you have to get people on board, and that's that. Something takes a bit of time, and um, you know we only have so many resources um, in terms of financial and uh, hours in the day to do that. Um, so it, it started out hard, um, hard to get plane in Moscow. I mean, it's landlocked. How do you dismantle a 747 at an airport in Moscow and realistically transport it out in bits the way to wherever you're going to store it, whether that be in the desert somewhere in the States or back home in NZ, who knows? That had a huge degree of difficulty. Well, that's been eliminated now. So um, uh, the 747's become a cinch because it's still – it's so much easier now to get hold of, you see, right, especially right, if right. it's flyable. And as I say, in, in, in years ahead, is anyone going to really worry that it was the last one we got rather than the first one? The fact that it's the only one will give it the authenticity and the, and the, and the value in, exactly. in a historical sense. So, And the 737 um, NAD, that was really sad that that was crushed, as he said, but as it turns out, NQC is in a condition where it makes it easy to get hold of. Um, it's We know it's definitely there. It does have some history attached to it because we can say it's the hardest working New Zealand aircraft in history, and it is. You can yep. prove that. Yep. Of course, the 747 was the Lord of the Rings 7-4 as well, so you can imagine that, that that puts a bit of notoriety back into it. In a display sense, you can see or visualize that graphic being back on the aircraft, and I would imagine it'd be a photo favorite for a lot of people. So, yep, absolutely. So, I mean, that's uh, that's really interesting. That of the five aircraft you're looking at, three of them actually have the potential to um, actually fly themselves to New Zealand. Because a lot of people that I've talked to have all said, "Oh, how are they going to get them here? They're going to have to put them on a ship." Well, yeah, a DC-8 and the DC-10 will have to definitely go that way because they're not going to fly. There's just no way. Yep. But uh, it means that uh, the effort that we fa were faced with at the beginning in, in regard to that sort of uh, those procedures has halved. And that's that. And also, here's the interesting thing. The two that we have to uh, manage in that way are in similar areas of the world as well. So that makes it a little easier to get around. Right. Um, Manaus, Brazil is a big river port. They sail container ships all the way to Manaus. So there's no problem getting um, the airframe out of there. And of course, uh, Havana, Cuba is a port as well. And yep. you know, the trans—I've looked at it on Google Earth. The um, distance from airport to uh, the port is only, you know, as the crow flies, just a few miles. So um, it's possible to get those out quite easily. Um, so yeah, the 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 degree of difficulty has sort of gone down as we've gone into this thing, and that's great. That that's yeah. because actually we're in a. Um, a better position than we were about a week and a half ago. And in, in a way, our crowdfunding needs, um, I mean, I'm still keeping the total that we've been calling for because I, I want three people to go around and and, and go on these uh, trips that we want to go and uh, meet the people. And as I keep saying, like a stuck record, make the relationships, do the deals. Because, but that's what we have to do. Um, but uh, on um, the urgency is only really relating to two of them at the moment. So um, that is a lot more deal, doable. So from that point of view, it's sort of all good, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, have you, um, in terms of the two that will have to come by ship, have you had any uh, transportation or shipping companies who have sort of taken an interest and, and may come on board uh, as a sponsor or anything like that yet? No. Um, I've had a few people who are experienced, uh, in, obviously, in the customs business, which I think okay. means getting things over borders. Um, who have said, if you need any help, let us know. Okay. Um, 
what what we need to do is i think we you know to to bring people along uh they have to see they have to see progression so what we need to do is show that we have them like we've got them um now we can uh probably um uh, and hopefully will be soon be making an offer for that dca as it becomes unencumbered it's been a legal dispute as it turns out all this time and if it hadn't been it would be long gone so Thank God right. for legal disputes is all I can yeah. um, Sometimes they work in your favor. But, uh, of course, once once we can say that, once we can say, well, now we're going to make them an offer, I mean, depending on the money, that's basically ours at that point. Now, I think that's, again, where people go, okay, all right, um, I see the need. Um, and that's when we can, I can go to a shipping company and say, look, we're in this situation. We've got this plane. Um, it's important to this country. We, we want a really good deal on you getting it here for us and yep. you will get fantastic coverage for that and you know charges cost don't want to get away with not paying anything but yeah. but it has to be reasonable and i think that uh, we'll get support there but it's probably not really the time in the exercise yet to sort of call for that sort of help let's uh let's let's bag at least one of them and that's what we're really working hard to do the others are in a holding pattern um and you know what are they going to do? They're old planes. Who's going to buy an old Electra after it's gone through its 60th birthday or whatever? Exactly. The, the only the only company in the world that would have considered buying it are the ones who own it now. Exactly. And it, <laughs> comes to point where it just becomes too old even just to even think of operating. So, And the uh, Canadian CAA will probably have something to say about it past a certain age anyway. Um, like they're doing with you know some of the older aircraft um, that are becoming more difficult to operate these days, that uh, used to be uh, easy to operate back in the day. So uh, and and the same goes for seven three seven. I mean, who's going to buy an old wrung out QC, uh, yep. except um, a bunch of people who have a particular um, or, or that it's important to you know uh, for a particular reason? And there's only really one bunch, and that's us. No no one else has got any any interest in it apart from us. So um, I don't see uh, great difficulty in, in maneuvering into a position to ultimately get those. Um, I consider them while they're still up out there and, uh, and not damaged and haven't had the wrecking ball taken to them. They're basically safe. It's these two, uh, the, the DC eight and the DC 10 that are uh, in real danger of, of getting trashed. And they're the hard ones. Those are the ones you really want. You know, a lot of people uh, are saying, get the DC-8, get the DC-10. They're ignoring the Boeings and the Electra. Yep. Maybe for some, the Electra was so long ago, they really can't actually physically remember it. I can remember it as a kid. But um, anyway, so uh, uh, so it, the whole thing is a dynamic process. It keeps changing day to day as you get more information. You find, you, you meet new people, you talk to new people. And we're so much further down the track than that um, um, time back in February starting out, my God, I, yep. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a completely different situation now. Great. Now, once you get these aircraft to New Zealand, um, or even if just get, get the first one here, the, the, you're going to have to have a place to put it, and you're going to have to, I guess, put together a team of people to restore it and look after it and, and build a museum around uh, those aeroplanes. So... What are the plans there? What have you got in mind, or, or can you not tell us? Oh yet? no, I can tell you. I don't. I, I, like I said before, it's probably someone else's problem. Um, yeah, I've um, had a bit to do with some of the aviation museums through the work I did over in America with all the air shows and meeting people, and um, got got quite a few ideas and 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 saw behind the scenes and and have kept contact with those people and. Um, you know, uh, the Museum of Flight in Seattle is, I think, is a fantastic role model of all the museums that I've seen. I think they've 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 sort of got it right yep. um, in the way that they obtain their artifacts. That they basically do what I'm doing now, and that's and that is basically putting your hand up, and getting first in the queue. That's how you get these things. Right. You just got to wait for them. That's all. Right. Yep. Until yep. the timing is right. Uh, but um, they've uh, created um, the mix between indoor and outdoor that they've created is about something that I think would work here. So, yeah, um, I think it, it's it's at a city scale and some of the um, councillors and mayors, uh, I'm hoping um, with the, some of the publicity we've had, have seen 
the visualizations that are being put out there. Yep. And I think it's important to do that because people need to be able to see what these things can look like and, and they sort of get it more, in my experience anyway. And I'm hoping that um, uh, those people, those um, city uh, managers and, and uh, elected representatives see that there is a huge potential for a very long-lived attraction based around these things. Now, from what I've seen in the other museums with artifacts of this scale is that they do great trade. They attract a lot of visitors. They're a great family destination. They also serve to inspire younger people. And, um, you know, we're always talking about, we do a lot of talking in New Zealand. We do, we're talking about, you know, getting more kids into science and engineering and technology. And, you know, let's, I mean, let's, this is not wishy-washy. This is true. The interest starts young and yep. it's usually um, spurred on by something. And just imagine if you could take uh, your kids to a place where you can literally walk around underneath, over, through these incredible machines, which actually mean something in our history. They're the real deals. And um, they're there for many decades to come. Uh, I think that uh, they can be very successful attractions. We've got a, a great tourism industry. It's growing all the time. We're going to need attractions like this in various right. cities um, to, uh, you know, to help the economy. So if you're Auckland, if you're Christchurch, even if you're Wellington, as I said on the radio the other day, for less than the flag referendum, you can have this incredible <laughs> yeah. treasure that goes for a long time that you can add to as well. I don't think Kiwis, I know you you and your listeners will know this, but I, I think a lot of Kiwis are a bit ignorant. You know, we really do take our place in the nations of uh, aviators. We've been doing this since almost, well, some people think Richard Pierce flew before the Wright brothers. I wouldn't know. I haven't looked into it enough. But we've been doing this for a long time. We've also been early adopters of aviation technology. We were early on um, a lot of the airliners considering our size. We have a very stable and uh, safe airline system going, you know, in the 30s and even yeah. before that. And, you know, we um, um, were independent enough to choose the 737 over the British and there was a lot of pressure at the time to go the other way. And, and you know, uh, that, and how successful did that decision turn out to be? We flew the 737 here for 47 years. Yeah, it's amazing. 50 years, you know. Uh, incredible. And then, you know, DC-8, um, uh, we were into that, I think, probably within the first five years of them making that. And, uh, you know, 747, um, or DC-10, wide body, what a great plane, and that, you know, that, um, built out the airline but the 747 has probably been more responsible than anything ever to build the tourism industry of this country yes you know and also for kiwis to go away on their oes um i don't know about you i went my first oe was on a Air new zealand 747 all the way to gatwick in london uh, i i went on a different airline but i came back on an air new zealand um 747 so you're absolutely right it, like air new zealand Today is, I think it's the, the biggest employer in um, in New Zealand, or, or one of the biggest employers. It's one of the one of the best known names out there uh, in terms of business. And you know, only last week I think it was uh, Australia named them as their most trusted business in Australia, and that's you know not even their airline. That's that's for the Australians to do that. That's remarkable. I know, I couldn't believe it. I had to read that three times when I saw that article. And uh, when you think about it, Air New Zealand is uh, taking New Zealand to the world, as you say, and uh, it represents us all around the world now. Um, South America, North America, Europe, um, Australia, Asia, they're, they're everywhere. And they're, they're such an iconic, um, well-known and well-respected airline. And uh, their history is important. And, and I was also thinking too, another thought that comes to me, and we've got some airliners already that are preserved in New Zealand, and and the biggest one would be the Solent uh, at Motat, um, which is which is one of the um, predecessors of these aircraft that you you're looking at because exactly still, and still became Air New Zealand. And, so. and really, you hit on a good point. What, sort of what we, when I say the Royal We, there's three or four of us. What we think is that we're basically just trying to keep up the collection. That's what we're trying to do. Yep. And before it's too late, and thank God we've got a Solent. Isn't that the most beautiful thing you've ever seen? 
It's incredible. And, it's incredible. And, and if you see a picture of it air to air in a certain angle, it's one of the most beautiful looking planes ever. It's so photogenic oh. and certain. But anyway, um, we can't afford to let the others go. Um, you know, they've just been just as significant. And, you know, we I've said this before, um, drawn uh, sort of modern day equivalents here with those ancestral canoes of the Maori. You know, uh, they were more, as I say to people, more than hollowed out logs of wood. They, they, they were part of an incredible story that actually couldn't have happened with, without them. And quite possibly, you know, in the modern era, we can say the same about these aircraft. So, you know, if, if they're not important, well, those ancestral canoes, they certainly are important. So these aircraft have got to be important as well. So it's up to um, us to, for people to realize, and this is my point before, people don't realize, you know, the sort of history we have in aviation. And remember, yeah. we've been traveling the longest routes of anyone for longer than anyone can remember. True. And that, that requires a very comp confident operation. Even if you go back to the DC-8 days, they were flying all the way up to LA, all the way up to Hong Kong and those DC-8s, you know, um, from a small country, isolated. So all their maintenance had to be top-notch. They had to be a very reliable machines to be able to project that far. And we were a small country and we did it well. And we need to remember those achievements. And it means a lot. It's important. And there are still plenty of people around who know that. So, you know, um, I want them to support us. Um, yeah, yeah. I think they are. But it's very important to save these things. And it will only be um, really known. That will only really be known sometime in the future when someone goes, wow, thank God someone saved these. True. Yeah, true. And, and another thing that uh, I was thinking about too, with the 737 and the 747 in particular, um, they're in very recent memory for most New Zealanders. We saw them at airports all the time up until only, you know, a few years ago. Um, but you, you think about the Solent and, you know, the DC-3s that are around and the uh, the Viscount and Friendship that are down at Ferrymead and stuff like that. Well, those aircraft went into museums only a short time after they left their service and uh, at that time they were in recent memory as well and you look at them now and they hold so much history that pe people are interested in so we're, for, for these 737 747 in 20 30 years time they're going to mean a lot more to somebody in a museum than they might now because you won't ever see them anywhere else um, exactly and anywhere so and you'll, be yeah. able to say, you'll be able to say these just aren't copies. These are the actual ones. Yeah. These th yeah. these are the real deal. That that one that that one there is the hardest working plane in our history. That one there carried the Queen around the uh, Pacific in uh, 1974. Okay. That one there, you know, flew the Beatles in to Wellington from Sydney. Uh, uh, that's what you're talking about. Absolutely. So, um, I mean, I, I can totally see the the significance, and uh, I can I can see the whole point behind this project. I think it's a, it's a really great project, but I also uh, on the other side, I see the massive task that you've taken on. So, uh, actually, I really actually no, it's not that big. When you when you break it down, it's not that big, and and that's what I think puts a lot of people off doing things that seem big. When you break it down, it's not so big. So, what are we faced with now? I explained that you know at the start it was a lot more complicated. Now, really, we really have to concern ourselves immediately with only two airframes. Yeah. Now, think yeah. of them as two broken down junk cars. That's how you got to think about them. They've got no value to the owners beyond, uh, well, in an airport company situation, it's been sitting up taking space for the last X amount of years, and they'll want something for that at the very least. The other one, well, they might want it replaced with something else that, um, that will be equally junk um, so we can get hold of that one. Now, um, there are well-known procedures for dismantling, and that can be done reasonably uh, easily. Uh, the DC-8 is a lot more manageable because it's a lot smaller, though the wing yep. is a bit tricky because it's all one piece from tip to tip. Um, Boeing wings are different. They can be um, removed. I don't think they can maintain their airworthiness, but they can be neatly removed at the wing joints to the fuselage, uh, okay. and then be, they can be easily reattached. I think, though, they lose their airworthiness, but nonetheless, they can look like they, they should do. But the right. DC-8, um, the wing box and the wings, everything, they're all one piece. So that um, that means that um, um, you have to sort of probably transport it as one piece. But apart from that, it's a narrow body. You can you can sort of visualize it strapped to a, to a ship quite easily in a few sections. The fuselage breaks down to about three or four 
points where its assembly joins are, and that's just a matter of drilling out rivets and cutting a few stringers and things like that. Sort of looked into that. Um, obviously, with the others flyable, that um, if we can get them directly here or even into the desert in the US, where it's uh, 100 bucks a month for parking, which is cheap parking if you want to save something like this, and that can sit there for as long as it needs to there. And it's um, uh, these are the flying ones, and it's less distance to go because they're all in that part of the world. But um, so the DC-10 becomes um, the problem, uh, the, the the big issue. So all we've really got to deal with and get our head around big time is how to move a DC-10, one DC-10. So that's really the complexity of this mission in the end. It's not, it's not, it's not massive. So you see now, it's starting to break it down. It's not so big. So it's not. They're not going to cost much because they're junk essentially. The, yeah, the DC-8 yeah. can be easily moved. Looked into that. Um, on a, in a very conventional way. DC-10 is a, more of a problem because it's bigger, but it can be broken down over a period of time to uh, a reasonable size components, and that is the big effort. Apart from that, you know, once they're saved and, uh, and they're safely stored, uh, whether they're sitting on airfields as intact aircraft still or, or bits in, sitting in a warehouse somewhere, at least that's done. And I, I, I go home happy even at that point. Yeah. Well, that's true. So, uh, has Air New Zealand shown an interest in, in this project now? Um, you were saying about the original 737 that you were trying to get and Riley owning the airline at the time showed no interest. Um, what about now? Have they taken any interest? Well, I haven't uh, approached any corporates and, and them being a corporate uh, because right. I think it's um, – well, we don't actually have to at this stage because the requirement for money is very modest. Right. And I think we're going to get there with the uh, crowdfunded. I think we've just hit three. Um, we've got a few other um, uh, things planned to uh, boost that and a few fundraising exercises that are in the works. So we'll get enough to go to at least the DC-8, which which negotiations on that are quite far down the track. We're talking okay. to the company that owns the airport who owns the plane. They're waiting for a court order to allow them to sell the assets that have been encumbered by this court case, which involved a, a, a business going belly up and leaving quite substantial debts, mainly to that airport company. And, of course, they want to sell what is left, which I think is another derelict uh, DC-8 airframe and a few other bits and pieces, uh, um, ground handling equipment and stuff that's been sitting there as well. But they're all past the use-by date pretty well because they've been sitting around for so long. Right. So um, that, could ha that could literally happen any time now. And I sort of know the ballpark of of what they'll take price-wise. So we're just waiting, basically, for officialdom to do its thing. And we're pretty well there. And and that's because I've been able to connect with, at an official level, with the uh, staff at the Brazilian embassy. So they've been able to go through their official channels and find out exactly the status of it, inform those people involved in it that we want it and why, and here's the campaign and all of that. So um, uh, obviously we're going to be first in line to uh, make an offer for that. Now no one else is going to make a competing offer because what would they want it for? That's true. <laughs> Except try and do us out of some money. Well, you know that that's a bit of a uh, it's like haggling over an old car again. You know it's ridiculous. So yeah, I, I can't see that being a problem. I think what will happen in Cuba in, in anticipating this, if we can get through the the diplomatic issues. And, and, and again, this is a great relationship builder for um, between the two countries because Brazil are in a um, – and I'm not putting words into their mouth, but this is how I'd be if I was them. You know, we get this um, sorted out with the DC-8. It's a great story between our two countries. Absolutely. And it builds yep. a relationship, a dimension to the relationship that just wasn't ever there before. Same with the Cubans. You know, uh, and I've got a feeling that um, they'll want that uh, airframe replaced if they're using it for training purposes. So we might have to find them something to replace it with. But it's just going to be another piece of junk, you know. So um, yep. uh, so we just swap a bit of junk for a bit of junk. Now, that's not a daunting set of negotiations. It's quite a simple proposition. Um, if they're, you know, mean about it and, and, and want to hold out and, and you know you know and and give us the finger and for some bizarre reason i highly doubt that um yep. they'll want to uh do a good thing as well and um and i think that uh, that would be again a great relationship builder so i i i don't have any unreasonable expectations but you know 
Um, I don't see it as being fundamentally too difficult either. And I see a lot of people from the comments sort of do. But once you think it through and you've got the information and you break it down, it becomes a lot more manageable. It really does. Well, I mean, just listen to you tonight. It, it, it certainly uh, sounds a lot more manageable than I, I was originally thinking. And, and you know, I've been watching the Facebook page. I haven't read every post, but I, um, I mean, I have to... Uh, come clean and admit I'm not really an airline guy so yeah. uh, I, I, I come from the, the my, my interest is the military side and the, and the warbirds and things like that but yeah. I'm, I'm also also always interested in heritage projects and, and history so I'm, I'm really keen to see that this um, goes forward and, and and wish you all the success with it but uh, I mean yeah uh, it seemed like a huge task until listening to you just now and I can actually see this could work really well um, but one one question that I need to ask, uh, which may throw a spanner in the works, I don't know, but um, apparently there's some XTEL uh, DC6s out there too. Have you looked into those? Yeah, I know there's one, I think, believe in South Africa somewhere. Okay. Um, and I've been thinking about that. Likewise, also 767 is in my thinking as well, because um, that is now coming to the point where, you know, uh, it was 86 when that arrived, and that's how many years ago now? So, yeah, yep. uh, both those aircraft, and I see someone actually suggested uh, or made mention of the DC-6. Um, I'm definitely um, prepared to, to look at that. Um, I haven't really had time to focus on it because I've, I've had uh, the focus on these five from the start. But right. uh, certainly um, not, a, uh, not against it. The thing is, though, it, it was only – it was an interim – Aircraft. I think I think we got them from the defunct Canadian Pacific Airline, didn't we? Or uh, I believe so. Yeah, and and then and then they went from Teal to the Air Force, so they've actually probably got more significance for the Air Force than they have for Teal. Yeah, and they didn't. Um, uh, I'm not I'm not downgrading them, but you know the elect what the Electra did was, even though it was a regional airliner like the DC six, I think they used to fly the DC six a long way. Um, yeah. um, it, uh, I remember mum saying I think she went up to New Caledonia on the DC-6 in the 50s um, but um, you know we didn't have much more um, uh, uh, capacity or capability with the Electra over the DC-6 except though we were out of piston power that was gone now we're into right. you know the era of well, what would become the jet so I, I think that, um, that, that you know makes the Electra a little more um, historical in airline terms than the DC-6. Uh, I think it was really only there for, a, what, uh, I'd, I'd have to go back to my uh, my books, but uh, it was only a few years from memory. I, I believe so, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and there were two of them, weren't there? Three, I think. Three, okay. Yeah. Um, and, of course, also, um, you've just reminded me, I think the uh, one of the old 72-100 airframes that the Air Force had is still sitting at uh, Woodburn. Mm, yeah, that's right. State. I mean, you could almost say that that could come into it. I mean, we had those operating for what, about 25 years, um, even though we never had any in airline service. They they were part of the deal. So, I mean, that could maybe uh, be be part of it later on. But certainly not against the uh, DC-6. Uh, of course, the uh, number one seven six is still flying for an airline called Star Airlines, which I think are based in uh, Ostend, Belgium, and they, they fly Maersk Air Freight. And of course, Maersk is a big shipping company into New Zealand. Yep. I've been thinking about how we can make those two things work together. So that might be a little bit of a, more of an answer to your earlier question as well. Right, right, right. Um, I, I need to uh, also talk about something other than Bring Our Birds Home because uh, you also um, had a podcast for a while. Oh, yeah, we had the New Zealand Aviation Podcast, myself and Martin Noakes, we're old mates. Um, actually, it was funny. Um, uh, Martin moved into the neighborhood oh, 15 years ago and and in the next street, and I thought, oh, who is this guy? And he, he had quite a thick South African accent then because he'd come from South Africa, though he's British originally. Okay. But he grew up in South Africa. I think his father used to make uh, airport runways. That's uh, how he got interested in aviation. And ah. it turned out, just from the conversation, you know, at the end of the street one night, that we had virtually identical interests. So um, uh, fast forward to a few years ago, um, uh, Martin was um, uh, working from home and was just around the corner. So we're able to easily do these podcasts. Right. Um, and what happened, though, is that um, uh, it uh, Martin travels a lot. He's a, um, uh, a process engineer, got a lot of contracts overseas, and uh, uh, it became problematic. And I've been intensely working in broadcasting 
very busy the last three or four years. So it's been difficult to um, maintain that without an income from it. It was fantastic uh, to do, really enjoyable, but um, uh, also the local radio station that uh, that we d- did it on also folded. Uh, so the you know you know the immediate um, need to because there's something about turning on the radio in your local neighbourhood and listening to your show. It's a pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. and that sort of went away. Uh, uh, but um, we've decided to revive it. We did another. We did one a couple of weeks ago when Martin was back. He's actually oh. uh, on another um, overseas trip at the moment, but he's based in I think Perth, Australia at the moment. So with uh, Skype or um, the phone system, we'll start doing them again. But they were only just a. They were sort of like a just like a conversation. They weren't, mm. we, we never claimed to be experts on anything. That was always there as a disclaimer, by the way, we, we don't claim to be experts, <laughs> just armchair enthusiasts, but, uh, but reasonably well informed and always had an opinion. And, um, it got reasonably popular and we start, we stopped doing it. And, you know, a few people complained, but Dave, I, I don't know how much effort it takes to you, for you to keep this podcast going, but when you've got day jobs and other things going on, and business and, and all sorts of things, um, you know, and, unless it uh, – once you pass the fun stage, and it was always fun, don't get me wrong, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, unless you can start to, to get something from it, because the video versions required quite a bit of work, you know, you know. Oh, yes, I, I know that. <laughs> go to one as well and ask them if it was all right and stuff like that. And, and i got to say, everyone was fantastic about that, but you, you, you've got to – so, you know, it used to take up a hell of a lot of time. Obviously, I don't need to tell you, you, you know. Um, uh, so, you know, we, we had a great time doing it. We got quite a few listens. It went yep. quite a long way, and there's still a market for it, and that's why we want to get back into it. But we just want to try and work out how we can make it sort of pay, not not excessively, but just something to cover the work. Um, you know, these things are listened to quite well. Uh, if they're on a YouTube channel, yeah, you you can monetize it. But but the the return um, is you know it's you can go out and maybe buy a few lollies or something at the end of the month exactly uh, and you probably know about that as well so um, just trying to find there, now there are new sites like Patreon in the US where you can donate and and stuff like that and we're thinking that maybe we'll give that a go one thing we did find that was interesting is it got an international following it was skewed towards this part of the world obviously. But I already had a YouTube channel with a lot of subscribers from the footage that I've been putting up from my film library. Um, so we got quite a following throughout the world. And it didn't seem to, for people, it didn't matter to them if we were in New Zealand or not. In fact, that sort of almost helped because it was sort of quirky. And we always leveraged off Wellington Airport and its wind as a sort of an identity anchor. So one thing we, we did realize is that uh, even even from down here, we can make something with the information that's global that is uh, entertaining to a global audience. And that's that's a pretty cool thing. So I, I think if we can get a donation situation going on the Patreon site, something like that, that we can build a following and we'll probably be able to get some money in, you know? I know exactly what you're talking about because, um, you know, I, I started my podcast in, I think it was November 2011, and it's been going ever since, but... I don't make money out of it, and I'd love to work out how to make money out of it so that I can actually, you know, have have an income coming in so that I can actually keep it going and 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 keep you know keep traveling to to meet people and um, me being one person alone, it's not so much the conversational uh, show like yours is, which is I, I love I really liked your show, even though I'm not really into the airliner side of it, but I used to just like listen to your show because. Uh, it, it was entertaining. It was really interesting. And well, um, aviation is a great insight into business, and it's big business. Yeah. So anything to do with business will always be touched on by aviation. So um, we used to go there for that reason. And and if you remember rightly, we used to wander off on other tracks. Sometimes we wouldn't even talk about aviation. We talk about cars, yeah. or but it would always drift in and out. And uh, you can do that when you've got two people because you you can have that sort of conversation. But yeah, it was sort of like a metaphor for being able to talk about a whole bunch of things, politics, different personalities. I mean, the Airbus Boeing thing is more than just two companies. It's two different ways of thinking. So yes, you're, yes. you're always going to get this, um, this sort of clash of, of those brands and those uh, um, national characteristics. Um, of course, the military is always a metaphor for wasting money. <laughs> so you can always have a laugh with that. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, there's there's a lot of opportunities for entertainment. And, of course, you look on the websites now. Every day there's a story about aviation, like uh, turbulent landing or someone 
getting hit yeah. in the roof and turbulence or someone being dragged yeah. off. You know, there's a lot of interest in, in those stories. Uh, and, and obviously, the um, news um, websites use them in a clickbait sort of way. But that tells you the interest that's out there. So, you know, um, uh, we, we tried to even pitch it to some of the radio stations here. Uh, right. But, you know, it's not conventional first line, what you think, entertainment. But I'm sure it would be very entertaining. I'm sure those, those shows as a weekend show uh, on, on a radio network would do fantastic. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and, you know, I, I take a bit of a different tack because rather than looking at news this week or this month or whatever, uh, I, I go to people who have had a career in aviation and, and get them to talk about their history. And um, so just like you, I, I've got listeners all around the world. I hear from a lot of people in Australia, uh, Britain and, and, you know, the USA who listen. And um, it doesn't matter that it's a New Zealand story. It's... Uh, Aviation is an international language, really, isn't it? And uh, I, I, I can, I can see that it would be a really good way to get our stories out to the wider community if you could get onto a radio station. Yeah, well, it's it's just not seen as a mainstream sort of subject area, but everyone flies. You know, the, uh, every everyone flies. Everyone's interested. Everyone's got a story. And, um, and and that applies everywhere in the world. And because now information is so uh, easily obtained, um, you know, you can be, I mean, it's a cliche, you can be anywhere now and uh, have that information. And and if you've got a reasonable um, knowledge of built up over years of the industry and of some of the historical moments and things like that, you know, you can bring that to bear on uh, on commenting on stories and um, things like that. And yep. and New Zealand, that's going back to my point before, for a little country, we have so much aviation going on. We were the launch customer for the 7879, for example. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, they're talking, I think, the A350 now. Um, someone's talking about Auckland to New York. Well, you know, that's going to be one of the longest sectors in the world. And here we go again. It's New Zealand again, you know. So, yeah, yeah. And that, and that goes right across the board. I mean, New Zealand invented aerial top dressing. Um, you know, look at the things that New Zealand did during the war. We, we certainly punched above our weight there. Um, all sorts of things. Well, I know just um, uh, here's a bit of a very quick story. Uh, talking about those historic aircraft that we're chasing. One of the things that um, I remember uh, hearing, uh, not from the guy himself because he was so modest and he's passed away now. But um, uh, when... Uh, NAC decided to, or um, were about to make a choice between the BAC 111, which was the, what the British people wanted us to buy. And up till that point, I think they got a bit rattled by the friendship because it was the Herald, a Handley Page Herald, which was the competition for that. And I think the British thought they had done enough to make that sale and they missed it. And the Dutch got it with the friendship. Obviously, the Viscount was the last. Um, uh, airliner that they sort of automatically sold to the Kiwis. There was going to be no question they were going to buy a British aircraft there. So anyway, they were they were trying to hard sell the um, government and NAC back in the day on the 111, which was the first short haul jet. You can't take that away from it. Um, and I think Freddie Laker built his early career on on putting that aircraft into service. But they decided, you know, that they'd go check out the Boeing. Well, um, Alan Kenning was the flight operations manager for NAC back then, uh, Captain Alan Kenning. He went to Boeing and he flew the um, prototype, which I've been on, by the way, because NASA ended up with that. And I made a video when we went and visited that out at Moses Lake in the early 2000s. I think it was 02. So I've been on that plane. I remembered Alan for that. Um, and I've got, a I've got a photo of my uh, filing cabinet that he gave me of him sitting in that cockpit with uh, Brian Weigel, who's a famous Boeing test pilot. Right. Anyway... He, he he went for one flight in that. He flew it once, and he said, this is it. This is the plane. I've never okay. about a plane. He'd flown the 111 already. And and um, so he phoned Doug Patterson back in New Zealand and said, it's got to be this one. My recommendation right today after flying this is it's this one. Well, actually, Alan ended up being a consultant for Boeing, and a lot of the work he did was improving the handling qualities of the various 737 versions that came along after that. Wow. So one of our guys ended up, you know, uh, contributing to the handling qualities of that commercial machine, which went on to sell how many thousands of copies? 
Yeah. And um, uh, right up probably now the modern day ones are different control system. But all the way up till the 300s, his influence was in there. So that's yeah. little old Kiwiland again, you see. And he was yeah. uh, way after he left NAC, he was kept on as a consultant for Boeing. So, you know, um, uh, we're, in, we're, we're as involved as you could ever be out there. And, and we've been doing it for a long time. So, and people in the know out there uh, know about us. Absolutely. Yep, absolutely. No, I to- totally agree with you. Um, so where can people uh, find out more about uh, Bring Our Birds Home and, and about uh, what you're doing? Okay, so probably the Facebook page is the best place because virtually every Kiwi, it seems, is on Facebook. Yeah. And i got to say, um, you know, it started there, and I can remember the day when we had one like. <laughs> uh, now we're, I think, approaching about 1,200. Uh, I'm told that's a, a good total. I've got uh, my colleague Darren Hunter, who's Auckland-based, who's sorted out the entire, this is my first foray into a social media campaign, though I'm finding it pretty logical. The old rules apply, but it's a, a, new, um, uh, a new sort of uh, environment. The interesting thing about what we can do with the social media, and, and I think you touched on it before, with the video updates and things like that, is that we can be really engaged with everybody. And yes. they can follow the story. And it's an interesting story. It's had twist and ter- twists and turns already. It's had some high points, some low points. Um, you know, people have been robust. Some people have been in touch and said, you know, you're wasting your time. Don't you know you're wasting your time? Things like that. Other people are saying, fantastic, great job. But I think, you know, a lot of people are enjoying coming along for the ride. And being able to put those videos up and those pictures up, and create those little productions and those uh, renderings of how museums and everything could be. I mean, you, you imagine trying to do that without that platform. Oh, it'd be impossible. It would be totally impossible. Yeah. So I, I don't think this could have been done. There would have been a hope of this being done unless you were very well connected or very wealthy and you thought, I decided, uh, you know, this is important to me. I'll go and spend a couple of million of my, my fortune on but that doesn't seem to happen much, <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> uh, you know. Uh, and I'm hoping there are a few people with fat pockets sitting out there, you know, wondering whether to hit that give button or not. Um, but uh, uh, you know, uh, but without the the social media com- component and building it like that, um, I, I just don't think we'd have the following. There'd be no way to get the following we've got. Whether it'll be enough to get us over the line, I'm quietly confident, but I'm not taking anything for granted. Uh, The other thing it's doing also, and uh, this is a very interesting aspect because this sort of goes towards what I almost do for a living, and that is I am recording every moment of this. So every time something happens, I get my phone out and I record a reaction to it. Right. So now I've got about, I don't know, 60 of those videos over the last two and a half months. Some have been like after really good phone calls, good meetings. Some have been like when I got told the 737 was crushed. It was brutal. It was brutal. But yeah. but um, so uh, what we're seeing now is uh, we're trying to get this uh, thing going. My partner in Auckland, uh, Darren, who's who's helping me out, um, to uh, put this up as a, a fly-on-the-wall documentary idea. Oh, right. Because you can see how this is going to go. Um, we've got all the early stuff in the can because it's all – it's all, you know, in front of desktop PCs and after phone calls and, and darkened lounges and things like that. Um, but soon it'll progress to going out into the field and seeing these planes and then meeting these people and starting negotiations. And so you can see that uh, the, it's got quite a way to go and it could be a very interesting um, a TV series. So yeah. um, we're trying to uh, sell that idea right now. We're getting some good reactions and I made a little um, video uh, the other day, which is what we've been sending to Amazon Prime, um, which is the company that has uh, those uh, those guys used to do the uh, Top Gear show on, Clark and Co. Yep, yep. Uh, Netflix um, through their uh, Sydney office, and also YouTube now funding content, plus some of the bigger local production companies. That's starting to go out there. Now, if we get a bite on that, and it's possible that we will, um, then that solves everything because you want as the outcome in the final episode of that program or that series, you want the airplanes. So um, at, at that scale, that, that could be a very interesting dimension to it as well. And I don't think it'll be too long before we'll find out 
either way on that. Um, I think it'd be quite an interesting program and would probably sell around the world to certain networks yeah, quite well. So that's the other thing that's in the mix. Uh, but the next few weeks are going to be really important. Um, hopefully, I'll get that information about that DC-8 that I was telling you about. Um, and we'll keep on uh, trying to find the opportunities. We've got quite a bit of publicity to launch this thing through the mainstream media a week or so ago. Uh, but that has to be translated into donations. And you just got to stay positive and uh, keep on pushing. And thank you so much for this opportunity. But it's opportunities like this to get the word out and to get uh, in front of as many people as possible uh, to make it more of a reality that, that will get us there. And we've we've got some flexibility. As I say, it's it's what we're doing now is based on the degree of difficulty that we had when we started. But now we have a lesser degree of difficulty, therefore quite a bit more flexibility to uh, you know to to in the long term succeed in this. No, it's a it's a pleasure to be able to uh, get the word out through uh, the Wings of New Zealand show for you and. Um, as this progresses, I'll certainly be continuing to follow it, and and uh, maybe we'll have you back for updates in the future. Yeah, sure. I'm hoping the next uh, big bold announcement will be um, that we we're in a position now to to grab this DC8. Right. And and just think about this: if even if we just get that one, what a beautiful, what a great get. Yeah. Uh, I mean, for a start, they look stunning. There's no question yes. about it. they are stunning looking aircraft. Uh, and, you know, um, the footage that we've had up of the first one arriving has been watched, I think, about 4,000 times now. There's a real affinity for that particular aircraft and for the DC-10. But imagine getting that and getting it early on. That would be good. I think that will open the door and people will think, well, if you can get one, you can probably get two. Exactly. And, and then we know that the, the next three are the easiest to get. So Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'd say, Dave, if people want to give and, you know, we'd really like them to. Um, and, you know, if the money is not used immediately, it will be used for this exercise. And uh, just so people know, and we've been saying it all the way through the updates, that we've been advised at a certain level, we will need to formalize the uh, structure into either a trust or a an incorporated society. But we at this stage where we're just talking about recce trips and we've got a very definite budget. By the way, we've had uh, great offers of travel from travel people. Of course, travel people right. love aviation. Why would Yes. Um, yeah. uh, that um, it, it's a very modest amount of, uh, needed for this first phase. Anything else that comes bigger scale will be on a more organized level. But if you go to the Give a Little page, it's givealittle.co.nz forward slash cause forward slash bring our birds home. You can make a donation. Uh, everything helps. And as I say, uh, we're in a great position now where it's sort of easier than it was. So um, uh, don't hold back. Help us out. And uh, with your help, we will get somewhere. Uh, we will bring some of those birds, if not all of them, home at some point. Well, that's brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Paul. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Dave. And I really appreciate it as well. And um, um, I'll keep in touch. And if we've got anything to uh, update, I'll let you know. Cheers. Thank you. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.